Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I am joined today by my dear friend, James Lott Jr. And I absolutely love you because um, you are someone I look up to. You have, you have years of experience, but with the energy of like a 15-year-old kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That is me. That's like me. That's like me. <laughs> and I love it. And, um, you know, uh, just to put things into slight context, uh, I'm trying to have conversations with my friends and share them uh, specifically because I have a lot of white friends. And so I want to really, really kind of talk with people and listen. And, and, and one of the things I want to acknowledge is, is anyone that does join me, including yourself. Um, I truly appreciate because, you know, I was listening to my friend, Ebony K Williams on a different show, and this is really a white people problem at this point. And the white, white people need to do their homework. And so it is not your job to sit here and talk to me or my audience but the fact that you're willing to, I, I truly appreciate. So, um, as well, you know, I love you too. So that's, that's, that's unconditional. You know that. Yes. Um, so I guess I want to start, you know, you've, this is not anything new for you. And uh, I mean, how do you feel? What, you know, can you give me, give, give me some history, give me some context. And I'm not talking about like, you know, um, the, the history of what was, but your history. I can do that, Phil C. Tech. Yes. Um, so this last week was really interesting for me. So those of you out there may not know this because I know I look great and black don't crack. I'm 51 years old. I just turned 51 a few weeks ago. Um, so I have 51 years on earth as a black man. So I was born during the civil rights movement. I was a, I was a school age uh, during desegregation and busing. I came of age in the 80s where you could be fired for being black. And I fought in the 90s for a change in the corporate world while being black. So I had different stages of my life in this. Um, I never thought back then that I'd still be for the same thing. I love dogs. Love it. It's like, yeah, <laughs> they, well, they hear my voice. You know what's funny? So um, just as a quick side note, um, so I put up signs all over my windows, uh, Black Lives Matter. So anytime they bark, it's... it's yes, they for the people, for the people. Yes. That's right, dogs. Um, I love animals. Okay, so so for me, I just never thought that I'd be going through some of the same things I went through. Literally, I became an adult in 1987, like like a biological adult, 18 years old. That's 30 something years ago. I mean, that's I mean that's I mean that's completely like the same problems that happened then are happening now. So this whole week, I got really shut down. I shut down, and I didn't know why I was shutting down because again, like you just said, it's not new to me. Clearly. Um, but I talked to my therapist friend, Mimi McKinley, which I, who I love, I do shows with. I do a show with her every Wednesday on IG. She helped point out I was triggered by trauma. Mm -hmm. Black people go through trauma in this country all the time. And we may not even realize it sometimes. And trauma in the medical field, in the mental health world, can pop up at any, anything can trigger it. So I think the Central Park incident and this incident with George Floyd, both those incidents together, seeing those videos triggered me. I was them. I'm lucky to be alive. Um, I was them in Central Park. I've been to that part of Central Park many times. I went to Brooklyn. I've been to I'm New York. I'm in New York. Um, I have had police pull me over and bend me over a car and things like that. I mean, I've, I've been that person. So I think it really, it really got me depressed because it triggered the past for me, saying that this is something that happened to any of us who are black. Um, and it's, it's happened to me. And I'm actually writing a book on it right now 
my experience with the police. I was writing it anyway, but now like really writing it to get it out there. Um, and it really made me cry. Like I literally cried and I cried for them and I cried for myself. I cried for my grandsons. I cried for my nephews. It really did affect me, but it was because of triggers of my own life. And that's kind of where I was last week. I mean, I told you for a couple of days, I just completely just kind of shut down. Yeah. Now I'm doing better, but that's, we'll talk about that in a second. But I just completely was feeling the weight of all black men. I, I lose, I was just, all of a sudden it was, I mean, I felt, even the way I was walking, I felt like I was walking forward. I was feeling hunched over. You know, I'm a person, as you know, I walk very tall and proud. I mean, that's how I am. And it really, but it really caught me off guard. I was thinking, why? I mean, this happens all the time. So why am I like being, you know? and so that's, so to answer your question, that's how, that's how I felt for at least a week last week. Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, I know like from my circle of, of like self-help and things like that, a lot of people talk about generational trauma and what I'm so like, disgusted by is that like for for a lot of the white people that i talk to they're like oh i have generational generational trauma and i'm like do you not see then can you not apply that same thinking and just shift it to the black community because what the fuck do you think they have uh can you see me something happened on my end i see you i see you i heard i heard you i heard you say it. i heard it <laughs> right. uh something happened on my end so i didn't see you um but yeah, so like I am just I am. Hey, hey, There's, is people protesting? That's right, protest. Protesting Speak out. Everywhere. Um, but yeah, I, I you know I, I don't know if you want to add anything to that, but I'm just absolutely like disgusted by that notion. And furthermore, like it is interesting to you know I'd be curious to know. Um, one of my therapist friends, she's talking with her therapist friends on like you know whatever the national sort of group is, or at least one of them of like. If we're going to help people mentally, we need to help them with the racism as well. And that's not, quote, that's not part of the curriculum at all. It isn't. And what's in its simple thing. So I just recorded, as of this recording, I just recorded a podcast with two young black men that I do music with. Um, and I brought them on. We, we had a discussion. We black men having a discussion about race. And we did, very honest. But at one point, my co-collaborator, James Woods, said to me and my other co my cohort, uh, Mike Brown, he said, you both are beautiful. You are a beautiful black man. We don't say that enough about black men, that they're beautiful. Um, and when he said it, I started crying. You know I'm a crier. I'm a crier anyway. I cry all the time. But I started crying. And I said to him, he was like, you know, I said to him, I said, thank you for saying I said, you know, I want to tell you something. I was never told I was beautiful until I was an adult. Mm -hmm. there was never, I was never told I was good looking or beautiful or anything as a black person until I was an adult, that no one ever said it to me. Who, who, who was the first person to tell it to you? That's a good question. I think it was a mentor of mine. His name was Joe. I can't remember his last name, say my life, because I'm old and I can't remember back then. But his name was Joe. And I actually wrote a story in my journal I read about recently. Um, he was a friend of my mom's who used to come around and um, he kind of mentored me and kind of taught me the ways of the world. And he said I was beautiful. He was the first person said I was beautiful. And the second person, which even more importantly, uh, said I was beautiful, was a guy named Tim Dolan who passed away from AIDS back in 91. But back in the day, he was the only gay black man that I knew in Sacramento. There was not very many of us running around there um, that taught, took me under his wing and taught me how it is to be a black gay man in 
Sacramento. Basically, he taught me how to walk through it. And he told me I was beautiful. And he said, don't let anybody, don't let society tell you, don't let the publications tell you that you're not, that you are beautiful. And I just, and I remember back then, I didn't cry when I heard them. I was just kind of like shocked, like, really? Is it me? And then I felt it in their actions towards me. So when my friend James said it today, he just brought tears to my eyes. I remember I was never taught that. And Never taught And I, I'm curious to go down this line. Like, how many times have you been told it since then, apart from just very recent, you know, just, just right now? Well, I mean, people think I'm good looking. I hear that all the time. But, I mean, but in, in a seriousness of that you're, that you're, I mean, I've heard it many times since then in various ways. You're a beautiful black man, strong by your handsome black man. But I just, I, for some, but again, I think for some reason that James said it today, while we're going through all this stuff, it just, again, it's a trigger of trauma bringing me back to growing up for the first 18, 19 years of my life, not ever being told that. I mean, yeah, I grew up where black is beautiful, black is beautiful. And I, and I remember all that back in the 70s, but I wasn't told that specifically. I was being told everything else. Yeah. You're black, so this is going to happen. You're black, so this is going to happen. You're black, don't do this. You're black, watch what hairstyle you have. What are you doing with your hair? What are you doing with this? I mean, it's like, I was told all the other stuff that was being piled onto me. Then in magazines, not seeing black men in magazines back then. And, you know, it's like, just things, just things like that. It was just very, I just, it just for some reason, this time period, him saying it now, just reminded me of that pre-adult time period where this wasn't, wasn't celebrated at all. Yeah. Um, I want to talk to you about the, you mentioned the corporate world, the corporate fight. Um, Cause I think, you know, this, this comes on all levels. And, you know, I was, it, it was just so interesting to watch the NFL put out a statement. Yes. Bombarded. Uh, and rightfully so. I mean, like, and, and I think that's the thing, like acknowledge, if anything, acknowledge your past mistake. I'm not saying it's going to write the ship. Oh, right. But, but, and so, you know, going back to, what was it? You mentioned the eighties. Um, what, 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 what was that like? You know, what was the corporate fight and, and, yeah, just just very curious from your perspective. Yeah, no, it was way different than today. I mean, it was very much, you know, in the '80s, greed is good, power is good. I remember all. I remember all that it was about making money. Everybody want to make some money. Um, you know, it was a big deal. But if you were brown, it wasn't an option. Like you weren't taught that was an option. I mean, I was told, you know, by my my father was working in the Senate by then. He was in Sacramento working for the senator Watson, so he was working in the politics. My mother was in school, it was in schools and doing stuff with teaching. So I didn't have that in my life immediately. Um, but I went to college, got out, and I decided to, to hit certain worlds. And when I started getting into it, I started to level, you know, entry level, mailroom stuff, whatever. And I quickly move up because every job I ever had, I always move up because I'm a you know, hard, as you know, I'm a hard worker. And I, they let me move up. But then I learned about the ceilings. I learned about how I was the only black blank in the company. I was the only person of color in the company. Um, I was the good Negro, so I was okay. We don't think of you as black, James, that kind of stuff. And I'll give you a great example of, of how corporate can work for you and not work for you in the 1990s, early 1990s. I worked for a company called Headlines. They have a thousand stores everywhere in San Francisco and Bay Area. I mean, I'm in the Bay Area where you think it's like Mr. Liberal, everything's great there. Um, me and this white guy, his name is Peter, I won't say his last name. We're still friends to this day, actually. We both got there at the same time around the same age. We actually kind of didn't look similar, but we kind of were similar in like weight and size and everything. Moved up about the same. Like literally, it's almost like neck and neck. There's no real like, we used to train, you know, you did good on the floor, you did good on, you know, moved up to 
we got to the supervisory role, we both are supervisors. Now it becomes, we need a store manager. Okay, we both put our hats in the ring. And I'm blindly thinking, well, my folks would say, well, James, you have a personality to kind of really bring people together. So we're thinking you probably will get the job because you just, you know, just have that slight edge or, and Peter even admitted that himself. And I was, I was much more friendlier. I was much more de- democratic, um, whatever words you want to use, uh, when it came to problem solving. You know, you had a problem, Senator James Lott Jr. He'll take care of it. Everybody be happy and blah, blah. So I thought I was going to get a job. I thought I, just thought I was going to get it. I mean, I just thought, well, because of that notion, but I knew it was a possibility he could get it. Well, they told me why I didn't get that job. They pulled me in the office and said, this is before they had the word urban. That came much later. They said to me, you are amazing, James Lott Jr. We love the work you've done here for the last five years. You are great. We're going to give you the money, the raise, and we'll give you the parking spot. And even though at that time I got rid of my car and I was in San Francisco riding BART, but we'll give you the parking spot. We'll give you the hours. We just can't give you the title. I was like, so why not? Well, you know, you're, you're, Peter's going to have, so you and Peter will be equal, but he will have, he'll be store manager. You'll be kind of like, I said, so am I, am I assistant store manager? Well, no, but you'll have the, 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 the rights and privileges of kind of like store management. We'll come to you for advice and things and uh, you'll help run the store. I go, so then why am I store manager? Well, the, the board thinks that if we hire you as store manager, it will give a different image for the company. And I'm like, what image is that? Well, that it's a black store. They said it to me. I sat there. Again, this is the the early 90s. I'm not that surprised that they're they're just so open about their racism back then. They didn't care back then. Because you could get fired for being black at jobs with no no recourse. I said, oh, so me being a store manager will turn into a, I think it's a ghetto store. Like, well, we don't mean like that, but just that we have a certain image that we have all stores are very uniform. I said, so what you're telling me is you have no black people in any positions that run the store. And at the time I sat there fuming, but knowing I had very few, I had very few options. I mean, I had very, back then I had very few options. And San Francisco was as expensive as it was now. It was expensive. But I took a stand because that's just who I am. And I said, if you can't give me the title, I quit. Now, I know not all black people could do that. Some folks had things that were going on. I was very fortunate at that time. My daughter was really young, and her mom had a job. We were, we were okay. Like, there were things, there were things we, I, could, I could do it. And so, and I got a job right away after that, but I left. Was, it, was there any part of you that, like, was like, shit, maybe I should consult with her before I, like, make this stance? No, because I knew her, and I knew she would agree with me. Okay. I knew she, and when I told her, she was like, good for you. Like, she was, like, so, like, good for you. Because we were just like, because we, we, we were both kind of activists in some form back then. So I knew it would be okay with her if I did it. If I did, it'd be fine. And I, was, I got a job, like, I mean, right away. I got a job right away. Um, but it was like, but that moment I realized later, not all black folks back then could do that. I know it's a privilege that I could do that. But I had to send them a message. I didn't care if I was going to eat potatoes for the next five weeks. I had to, I had to make a send a message that <clears throat> this is not okay. <clears throat> and if you're not going to give me a chance to make effect change happen, I got to give you a message. Now I'll give you a little follow-up. Five years later, they came back to me under new management and I was store manager of their cash flow location. Look at that. I actually went back. I actually went back and finished out. So they closed down the stores. The stores closed down like a year later, but I actually went back five years later and I was the store manager of the Castro Street store of Headlines. Wow. Um, so, 
But it's just very interesting that back then it was the racism was very open. It was very just like the corporate world was just like, this is how it is. Women, gays, blacks, Latin, it didn't matter. They were very open that it was an old boys club that the white folks are running everything. It was very open. There was no like hiding it or being subtle or whatever. They were just like, you know, this is how it is. If you don't like it, bye. They didn't, they didn't care. They're like, bye. See you later. They will find somebody else just like you out there and, and uh, fill your spot. Yeah. Well, not to, uh, not to like switch topics too much. And, uh, you know, cause I, I think that's very powerful and I'd love to follow up on that. But, but in today's, today's day and age, um, when there are studies that literally prove the health of your company financially will be better the more diverse you are. And when you look at studies like Harvard did a study where they, they made a very amazing resume. And this is more of a gender thing, but they put, you know, like uh, just, I don't know, they put Greg on one and Georgina on the other, right? People said that uh, Greg's resume he was a stand-up guy. He showed leadership and so forth. Whereas uh, for Georgie and different names, I'm just making this completely up as far as the names, but, but, but they revealed that um, they were like, she's entitled. Who does she think she is? And so this is a gender thing. So what sort of reform in today's day and age should happen? Like how do we like create like a blind application process where race, gender does not fall into it? Like, is that part of the solution? Are there others? Like, what, what, what's your perspective on that? I think that um, we need to make it, make it an even playing field. And we can get, just get, just like, just, I, I feel like at this point, we need to, we need to start from the top and not have it where it's like, we take every stereotype in consideration. And that's how we judge and base people on. I mean, we all have biases, I can get that. But I feel like we need to make it an even playing field. So whether it's, you're black or white or Latina or Asian, whether you're female, male, or whatever gender you go by, we need to kind of stop doing that and really go by merits of your, of your work and your talent. I, I, so I feel like we need to get back to that because as you know, I work very hard in everything that I do. And I feel like that's what should tell the tale of when I should move up in a company. Cause you know, in corporate world, it's all about milestones and markers. That's what you kind of, that's what you kind of do until you retire. Then you like retire and go off to the Bahamas. I mean, it's like, but that's, that's the whole thing. So when it comes to that, I think we need to find a system where it's like, let's stop, let's put all that, let's put everybody on a playing field. Get rid of, so when a woman is strong, she's not a bitch. When a black guy gets loud, he's not an angry black man. I mean, there's those stereotypes that are just ingrained in there that women are always combating and black men are always combating that too. I don't be the angry black man. I want to say something, but I would say, you know, you're getting a little too heated, James. You're getting a little too, you're getting too little heated. Or, you know, James, calm down. I've had that in meetings before. I'm like, I'm not going off. I just I have a deep voice and I'm just trying to get my opinion out there. Um, if we can make it an even playing field where it's talent versus talent, work versus work, that's, I mean, that's, the, that's the, to me, it's, and then we'll get more diversity. My friend, Mike Robbins, uh, I just interviewed him on my show not too long ago, puts out a series of books about, he's white, but he's in Oakland. He has a series of books about how putting the personal back in business. What, so what's just the thing right there. What's the series called for anybody that wants to check it out? Oh my God. I, 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 have, to, I have to email it to you. I forgot. I've got the, I'm thinking out right now because I'm thinking all this black stuff right now, but yeah, no Mike, Robbins. Mike Robbins is great. He's on all social media platforms, um, but he's all about putting the business back in business and his person back in business and his latest book has a whole thing on race, mm -hmm. a whole thing on race and how diversity of race is great for a company, for the emotions of the company, for the, for the complexities of the company, for everything for the company that is just that it's, 
you need different people in a group to make ideas happen. You need different perspectives. Um, and that's always been my thing. And every job I've ever had, but I got to, I always got into management. I, it was surprising, right? I always got into management. So I always tried to implement systems. And some of those jobs are still there. Still, I heard they're still implemented. That would included more diversity in thoughts, language, and color. Uh, to that effect, so you're, you know, one of the many hats you wear, apart from a Brooklyn hat, is, yeah. um, is, is a super organizer, right? You help people organize their lives, which in large part is also a mental thing. But Oh, yeah, no, it uh, is. But just talking about the, the field in general, um, what's, what's the landscape like there? And, how, and what sort of message would you have that, um, at this point kind of flipping it? Because, I, you know, I, 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 we don't need more white people, you know, to, to, more white people does not like bring up diversity. But like, you know, what would you say to someone that like is, you know, to encourage them to be in the field of super organizing? It's funny because it's my five-year anniversary of my show, the Super Organizer Show with James Live Jr. Um, and I just had, and of this day of this recording, I just recorded that episode with three of the former presidents of our big association, NAPO, the National Association of Productivity and Organizers. It's the biggest organization in the world. Um, there's others, but it's the biggest one. And I'm a member of it. I've been a member for six years. I just made the Golden Circle uh, movement of that. And I interviewed the three, the three ladies that run it. See, the organizing world is mostly women. It's 95% women and 5% men. And then with the women, it's 90% white women and 10% other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've worked with some other of the black female organizers. I've talked with them. And I found one black man who's an organizer in Atlanta. Only one. He's black. I haven't, we haven't talked yet, but I've met him. His name is Steven. So I can't wait to talk to him on the show. Um, the show is female heavy. And it's, and it's very Caucasian heavy. So we had this talk on my show about the future, and I really do believe, um, and what I'm doing in my part with my show and what I, how I, I'm, a, I'm kind of a big deal in that industry at this point. I've been doing it for 11 years, um, and I've always tried to push diversity and try to push people of color, try to attract people of color. This job is not color specific. That's the great thing about organizing. I have a series called the Super Organizer and uh, Man in the Industry series. And I have to do an episode on that where I'm like, hmm, so it's not based on gender. It's not based on color. Anyone can learn how to be an organizer and learn how to be organized. That It's colorblind. It's genderblind. It's like we need more people to stop thinking of this as a white person's field. Um, just because you don't know about it and it's, they may not know it's a business, uh, it is. And that's been my job is to show people out there of all colors and stuff that this is a great business. We're affecting change in a lot in people's lives. It's a mental and physical thing. Me showing up to your house to organize your closet is only just a small part of it. It's a small part of it. Um, and for great, you know this, for great mental health, a lot of times how you keep house, how you keep your office, is really a big deal. It shows how you are. Um, and I think, um, I think I think people of color need to understand that it's not just a white people's field. You can come into this field and really do some amazing things if that's what you are into. If you're really into, um, you know, tidying and organizing and, and system building and system creating, it's not color specific. And so I try to fight that all the time that I'm black, but it's not, I mean, I mean, it doesn't matter. You can be anything you want and be an organizer. It's a great field. I love that industry so much. I can't even tell you. So uh, uh, that's a very interesting perspective because, um, you know, like the field itself is colorblind, 
But how do you react to when people say, oh, I am colorblind? You know what I mean? Because there's a lot like that, because there is a distinction and I'm, you know, I, I'm very thankful that I have great like mentors and people that I can listen to and like they've explained the difference to me. But I'm, I'm curious because you, you, you know, you just said the field is colorblind. So how do, how do, how do you have a field that's colorblind, but not be colorblind yourself? And I don't mean you specifically, I mean like yeah. white people. Yeah. I hate the term colorblind. Okay. I feel like that you don't have to be colorblind. See my color as long as it's not anything bad. When I was younger and I was told, James, I don't think of you as black, I thought it was a compliment. And I thought, oh, they really see me, James Bond Jr. Oh my goodness. And then I realized, oh, they think black is bad and so i'm the good black person that's when i started realizing when i started seeing their other exchanges and how they treat other black people i was the golden child golden brown child it was very much like oh i'm over here i'm like oprah winfrey we're the good negroes we're over here um now so i started going wait a minute i don't mind if you see me as black only if you see thinking black is bad so I, I hate the term colorblind. I'm like, don't be colorblind. See who I am. See that I'm brown or you're brown or you're light or whatever. As long as it's not negative. That's, I mean, that's, I, mean I have no problem being called a black host or a host who is black. Um, as long as you don't pigeonhole me in just that and a stereotype in it. Um, I, I'm a black host. Just like, I, yeah, I'm a black. I'm a host. I'm also a black host. I'm a Puerto Rican host. I'm all kind of hosts. I'm everything. I have no problem how you want to describe me, but don't hold me into whatever stereotype you have for that. So I hate the word colorblind. And I think people need to eliminate that from the vocabulary because I think it's just ridiculous. I mean, we all have to, we all look different. You have yeah. short hair. I got an afro under here. I'm not showing anybody right now. Um, you know, I have, I have a larger nose. Some people have smaller nose. Like we have, we just, we look what we look like, folks. Who gives a, who gives a F? I don't know if you can cuss on here or not. I guess you cussed earlier. Who gives a fuck? It's like, it's like we all look different. So it's like, that's the, let's celebrate that. Who cares? It's like, that's the point. So look at me and see that I'm colorblind. And in business, you see me as a black man. Good. That's fine. As long as you'll see me as a black man in spite of, or also as, I mean, no, screw all that. Just like, just see, if you see me as black, that's fine. But see me as a good worker or a good asset to the company or a good, a good collaborator. I mean, that's kind of the whole thing. It's like, Celebrate my black. Maybe some of my blackness actually could help some. You know, it's like maybe some of your Eastern Europeanists can help something. Like it's it's kind of like why do, why are we so afraid to see the differences? Let's just celebrate the differences. Let's not make a big deal about the differences. Just to celebrate them. So that's kind of how I feel about that. Yeah. Let me ask you this because uh, there there was a, a painfully wonderful quote that I heard that we we are in a time where we are infinitely creative at finding ways to divide ourselves. Yes, I like that. I like it too, but when you really stop and think about why you like it, you're like, that's really fucked up. It is, it is. but it's a great, it's a great description. Great description. Uh, um, so how do we, you know, how do we, how do we see the differences, but not act on them? So I think, you know, like that, I feel like that's the key component of it. And it's like, you know, I, I, I cause I, I do feel like there's so much, the idea that we're, it, it's just so interesting. I, I have these, quote unquote discussions with people and you say one thing that's wrong that that is not of their opinion they're like well you're not a free thinker and you're following the mainstream media and it's like well 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 first off i gave my own opinion that is separate of the mainstream media but but because i don't think like you all of a sudden i am not 
a free thinker. And, 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 and it seems to me like the, 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 the debate aspect of it has just gone out the window. Um, yes, that, that, that's our cancel culture. That's our culture of, I am right, here is my opinion, here's my verbal diarrhea, and if you don't agree with it, screw you. I'm totally opposite, I'm totally opposite of that. And, I, and, I, and that's why I had to get off of social media for a while, because I just think that people, I have black folks who get on my nerves, to be quite honest, that they get on my nerves just as bad, they get just as bad as anything else. But I refuse to fight with black folks online, because I'm like, let them have their anger, let them do their, I mean, I know everything's heightened right now. But I've been, I have folks who literally, if you don't think a certain way, like they do exactly, you're wrong. That's never been me at all. I've been always a, I'm, I'm a free thinker, folks. You don't know who I am, I'm a free thinker. I do things whatever the way I want to. Um, I feel like people need to understand that people change and grow. I'm not the same person I was at 18 or 25 or even 45. Not even, even from last year, I'm the same person, hopefully, right? If we're fortunate, we grow and change and we're getting better and better. With that is education. I'll go back to my organizing. Everything starts with a habit. You have to start, everything, everything begins and ends with a habit. Everything you do, it's a habit form thing. So for me, if you're open to kind of looking at your own biases, prejudices, racism, whatever, it's going, to take, it's going to take time to unlearn them. It's going to take time to put them in the past and add new way, adopt new ways of thinking. It takes time. You will not always say the right thing as you're going through this. We need more compassion uh, for people who are really trying, like who are seriously trying. Um, it's, I think we need to be more, a little more lenient. I get, I get the anger and rage and how you're just tired of just, you're just tired of folks saying certain things. I totally get that. But let's educate them. Let's help them create good habits to be born out of this. Um, that where they stop saying, you know, that's so gay or, you know, that's so black. You know, we start, some people just, they grow up saying that and sometimes they don't even know it's doing anything bad. You have to really just trust they may not know that. Well, let's have, a, if, they, if they're open to changing and not saying that anymore, then let's help them along and give them the compassion to actually get there. Change happens. It doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen. And it takes time, steps and time, but it's all back to habit forming. It goes all back to that organizational thing. Yeah. And I feel like that's, that's one of the ways you do that. How do you encourage people to, 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 to do that? Because, you know, um, there's a show that I produce and we were talking and, you know, uh, the, the host is a, a white woman and her audience is mostly white yoga wearing women. Yeah, yeah like, yoga wearing women's. Yeah, they go, and, they and, go to you know, and, and she's someone like, I, I, I really praise her and she was like, she, she, had, she really felt uncomfortable doing the episode that she did, but I was like, I think that's the point. And the reason I bring that up is because I think it's one thing to to put in work, but I think there this is this is um, Black Lives Matter. Yeah, Black Lives Matter. But I think it's another entirely like there's a difference between going to the gym and feeling that sort of pain versus like the, there's like a, a huge level of discomfort. And I think you know I, I've seen firsthand like you know, you just said like, oh, you know, uh, like uh, the pejoratives of like, you're gay, you're black. And yet a big pejorative seemingly is the word racist. And it's like white people just don't want to wear that badge. They are not even willing to admit that they have racist tendencies. And I, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. I really hope for better. I have started saying that I am a racist, not as a badge of honor, but to admit like, I have 
Like I, I, well, I don't, here's something I'm gonna say to you, Seville. I think you should say instead of I'm a racist, I have privilege. I acknowledge my privilege. I think that's the words we need to use nowadays. That um, people who have, like, I have male privilege. I have male privilege. I mean, I'm not a white man, but for some women, I have way privilege over them, and I admit it. I completely admit it. I have height privilege. I'm tall. I can do certain things that short people can't can't do it. Um, so I tell them all the time. Once we acknowledge our privileges, because that's a word, too, that's very divisive, privilege. People hear the word privilege, they think money not to cut you, not, not to cut you off, but, you know, because one of the things, like, people say, oh, well, I've worked hard for everything that I've gone and this and that. So can just le- level with everybody. What is yes. privilege defined as? Privilege is defined that you can do something and get away with something that others can't. That's, to me, is the simplest way of privilege that you, by the way you look, or your attributes, can get away with certain things that others can't. That's why I met the male privilege thing up. There are things that men can get away with that women can't. There are things that black folks can get away with that maybe Latinos can't. And then white folks can get away with all kinds of stuff that everybody else can't. That, that's the baseline of privilege, is that the way you look, gets, pretty people get have privilege over people who are not so pretty. Like it's, it's, it's the way you look. It's your coloring, it's your skin, it's your nose, it's your eye color. All that stuff gives you an advantage in life over someone else who doesn't have that. That's, that's my definition of baseline of privilege. Have you seen the video? There's a wonderful video. Um, it's, a, it's a school teacher um, and he, he has like a race, right? And yeah. he says, whoever, whoever, whoever wins gets a $100 bill. Now, before we do this, he said, I'm going to call out a couple of things. And when if it applies to you, take two steps forward. And the, the point of this exercise was the idea that, you know, uh, basically all of a sudden all the white people ended up at the front and all the black people ended up at the back. And it's like, see, nothing that I have said is actually something that you have achieved in your life. This was just, this was something outside of you. And um, I thought that was a very powerful yes. way to illustrate it. But, that, but that's the whole point is that it's, it's, it's privilege. And I feel I invite all of my white friends to say they have, they admit they have white privilege. That to me is the first start. I've always said that since on other shows, and I'll say it again and again, and it's controversial with some people, and I don't care. True change will not happen until the people who have the privilege admit they have privilege. So full gay rights are not gonna happen until straight people realize they have privilege and bias. Why is that white controversial? I, I, I... Oh, folks, we have to get mad. I mean, it's like, well, well, you can't get everybody to lie. I'm like, I'm not talking about every single person in the whole goddamn world. I'm just saying that most folks, they don't like that I say that. I, I don't like get blowback from sometimes. It's like, well, you know, you just, you know, that change is still happening. You don't have to wait for white folks to do it and that kind of stuff. I'm like, well, I'm not waiting for them to do it. But at some level, it really won't go anywhere until they admit they have privilege. The diet discussions will not happen. But black folks can- yeah. I mean, I, yeah, to me, it's like if, if it's a systemic issue, right? it's because the white people put it there. So that's, yeah, that's my, that's my whole thing. I, I'm coming. I'm, and that's where I'm coming from. Like you said earlier, a generational thing. I'm coming from how this, I mean, being brought over here, first of all, um, oh, and it was, we didn't, we didn't find, we didn't find the feminist nation. We, we helped build it, but we didn't found it. They put a system in place. There are no black folks in the Constitution, writing the constitution. They did that. So there are things that are put in place that we have to dismantle. But we, have, but we can't fully dismantle them until those who put it in place admit it. And I'm sorry, folks, 
not and you guys who are now you know i was around in 1600s and i my family didn't own slaves always always hear those kind of things all the time and i say but that's not the point the point is you still look like those who did <laughs> and you still have the privilege of those who did it doesn't matter if you did it yourself i mean it's like i'm not a gangbanger either but i feel bad for black and black black crimes i mean i, I don't that those two things are mutually exclusive so it's just, it doesn't matter if your family were slave owners i'm like who cares um, but it's the point is that you are a white person and no, you're not rich. No one's saying you didn't work hard. That's not what we're saying. And we're not, and again, we're not asking for better rights or more rights. We're asking to be equal. That's all. That's all we're asking for. I, I'm tired of hearing this narrative too of like, they just want so much and they just want all I'm like, no, not really. We just want the same stuff you got. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And how do you, how do you handle that sort of, I don't know, for lack of a better term, backlash. Like, do you, do, you, do you just like quiet them, block them? Like what? I don't have the privilege to lay down. I don't have the privilege to go numb. I just don't. Um, being a black person in America, I can't. Um, I treat it the same way I treat my everyday life when I leave the house. Um, and nowadays, not even living in your house anymore. But when I leave the house, uh, I'm on alert. I'm hyper aware of my blackness wherever I go. And I'm hyper aware of any reactions that I get. So when I get reactions like this, I get backlash. I kind of know I'm going to get it. So I don't, I don't get as upset as when I was younger. I've mellowed out a lot as I've gotten older. Uh, trust and believe. We can't fight the world. So I've learned, let, it, just, it, just, it just reinforces what I know already. So I'm not the angry black man every five seconds. Um, but a few hit me certain ways, and I usually will try to educate them and engage them, only for a little bit. I don't, after a while, I do just kind of, if I see it's not going anywhere. And I've had great, I want to make this clear, I've had great debates with people that have ended in something great. I will say that with white folks. I have had some great discussions, personally, professionally, online, in person, that were great discussions. I mean, great discussions, where we both actually want to learn something. Because I'm learning something too. And so I'm kind of, I mean, it's, it's a give and take thing. It's not just, okay, you got to learn from me. I'm the educator and that's it. No, I'm learning from white people too. I'm learning what, they, what they're going to do. I mean, I have white family members. My family, I'm part white. I mean, this, it just happens. I, I grew up in a multicultural household and family where I had a grandparent each of different races, basically. And so I've, I learned from you also. And I think, and to me, it's, it's about trying to have that dialogue. But if you see it's not going, some folks argue just to argue. Some folks bait you just to bait you. And you have to find, because I'm in, in, I'm in media and I'm on television, I kind of know how that, I know what trolls are, I know, how, I know how that works. So I'm a little more well-equipped to pick and choose my battles. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it's very interesting to me, the, the aspect of education, because I was talking with Drew Jones uh, before this, and she mentioned, like, we as Black people learn your history. And, and she was telling me, like, she can tell, you know, the, the Holocaust, um, you know, uh, like, ba basically everyone else. The revolution, all these things, we learn all that stuff. Yes, Civil War. Yeah. But, but black history is only, you know, is not taught. And it's very cursory as far as Martin Luther King. And even that, it's, it's a very, um, I don't know, from an educational standpoint, like, what sort of education would you want to, would you want to see in terms of, I don't know, just even literature read, right? Um, and also, I'm, I'm very curious. This this kind of popped into my head. I'm very curious to know if, if what you think of this because we always talk about like I will never know your perspective, 
Do you think through virtual reality, like, you know, the whole VR headsets, do you think that could be a start to, to, to maybe like have people realize and, and experience it? That's a good question. Um, but see, then my question would be to you is, they know it's a VR experience, it's not for real. I wonder if that's not any different than showing them a film of something that happens. I know VR is more, it's more interactive, you feel like you're there, but I wonder if that, would that be actually, would that work, I wonder. I don't know. I'm not saying. I'm not saying it's the only solution. Right, no, no. I know. That's, that's an interesting thing. I'm just thinking. I wonder. I wonder if that would. Is you're fully when you're in VR, you're fully immersed. In, I know that part, but I'm just like wondering if you know. It was almost like that Scared Straight series that came out years ago. I, I mean, I was kind of laughing at some of it because it was kind of it was very over the top. But I always wondered. They're on television. They know they're being filmed. So they kind of know they can't really do anything that bad to them. I guess. I wonder how effective that show was. I get what it was trying to do. But I wonder if they didn't have any cameras and this was a program and they, were, and they knew it wasn't, it wasn't fake and they could do whatever. I wonder if that would be more effective. I just, I just wonder. I mean, it's one of those things when you know it's – because I, I can't – I mean, my virtual reality is just every day. I mean, I just can't escape it. I mean, there's, there's no – black folks can't escape this at all. There's no – when you say um, what they did, are you talking about the um, the... Well, the cops and the and the and the other inmates that they they would have in this series that would have like scare them and stuff? Yeah. Um, and maybe some of the kids. I mean, I know the statistics. Maybe some of the kids came out okay. I don't know, but I always just felt like what's well, for the cameras also. So they can only do so much. I mean, legally, they can. Only, I mean, they can't really touch. I mean, I think mean, what if we actually luck with these little little motherfuckers up in jail with them, have them spend the night with a criminal overnight? You can't really do that. But what if they did? Well, I wonder if that would really scare you straight. That would scare me straight. That would scare the fuck out of me. Oh, like, I mean, I would never go and go to jail and do anything yeah. bad. But you know what I mean? But it was but there was cameras there, so I'm yeah. just like, well, what is that? I mean, what what can they really do? So I just wonder. Um, I kind of like your old thing of like, you know, walking a mile in my shoes and you see what's going on. But I was curious how that would, I mean, I just wonder how that would work out if that really would work or not. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting because I asked you about the Scare Street thing specifically because I, I do know um, someone who worked on the show. And, oh, yeah, oh, you do. I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, 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 nothing. Listen, I don't think she'd take it that way. But, um, you know, uh, on the plus side, I think she has mentioned to me that, that it does, like, it okay. has caused some good stuff. Oh, good. But, okay, good. But, but, but yeah, it is that question mark. And I don't think she'd like be offended in any sense of like, well, w- would there be a bigger reform if the cameras weren't there? So I don't, I don't think she'd be like offended. Okay. I'll get and, some tweets later from her going, <laughs> yeah, I saw your show with Phil and you were talking to me. But no, I mean, I mean, in all seriousness, I mean, I am curious about that because kind of like, because I've worked with, I do some volunteer work with programs that are not on camera. Folks, <laughs> I work with young Latino, Latino groups and young men's groups and things. And I've done that off camera. And of course, Homeboy Industries is, and I've done stuff with them and, it's, it's not on camera. And so the stuff is, I mean, I know it's real. So I've seen real change come out of those, you know, be born out of those organizations. So I'm just curious, when there's no cameras around, it seems like that is much more a possibility because uh, yeah. you can do a few more things you probably couldn't do on camera. You can say certain things that you can't say on camera. So I just wonder just how that would work. But I, I knew what the show was trying to do. And I, you know, and anything you do to help, if, if a person's watching it on TV and gets scared, then great. Yeah. And if a young black kid sees it and goes, ooh, I'm not going to do that. I don't get, you know, I'm not going to talk back to my teacher or my mother. Then, yes, they won. Yeah, and I, I guess in that sense, like, I, you know, and again, I'm not saying, like, the VR thing and walk a mile in my shoes is the only way. But I think, I mean, I just look back on it and the, the lack of literature. Like, I, I don't, you know, we talked about Toni Morrison, but we didn't read Toni Morrison. Um, I, don't know, but don't, I went to a black high school. 
and didn't learn black history. I went to a black high school. So take that, really take that for a second. Like really sit with that for a minute, folks. I was in the hoodie hood in New Inglewood and we did not learn black history. And we learned from the regular old white books they gave us, everybody, everybody all about white and then the Indians did this and they welcomed the white folks. It was completely sanitized, completely sanitized. But I also want to make a, a note that I know we're trying to also compete with white schools and better schools for funding. I know, there, I know, that, I know there, that was going on and for us to go to certain colleges. I want to go to a good college. So, that, you know, again, systemic state tests, they don't test on black history. They test on American white history. So yeah, you had to learn certain things so you can actually do your SATs and other things. And so I get that was going on too. So that's a whole other issue, of course, on the show. But I, but I just, but think of it for a second. I went to a all black high school mostly. There was a, some Latino and other, but mostly black high school in a black neighborhood. And I didn't learn black history. I learned it in college and later. That's where I learned black history. And some and some family stuff. My family would tell you a few things here and there, yeah. but they were, but even they were like back because this was back in the you know I went I went to school with dinosaurs roamed. So when I was back in school, it was like, don't be so black. I was being told to be a certain way so I could get that they taught me you have to work twice as hard to get half as much. That's what I was taught my whole life. So I had to like don't speak Spanish so much, James, or kind of hide that for a little bit. You know, only bring it out when you need a job. You know, so you make fifteen you know percent more than other people. So I can so I can't be. Uh, Puerto Rican, unless I get it for a job, but I'm black, but only be only be only a smidge black, you know. And I, you know, here's something that you just brought. You just don't make me think of film. I'm gonna share this with you all out there. My father, James Lott Senior, a uh, very prominent figure here in Los Angeles, and uh, and he's very very light skinned. Um, and there were things that he went through that I judged him completely for. Uh, you know, passing, and that, that is a whole other story, too, to get ahead back in the 70s and 80s, because, I mean, you know, you kind of had to use what you had. Now that I look back, I wouldn't necessarily do what he did, but I understand, because he's very successful, I, I get why he had to do certain things. He felt he had to do certain things to get ahead, because, again, Black folks did not have the privilege of just getting ahead on their own merits. That was a that was an issue. So now I look back as an adult, go, Okay, I get why he made certain choices. I totally get it now. As a black man, he's still a black man. I mean, just like being a black man. But I get why he made certain choices. And I went, okay, now I understand it a little more now. As a host, do you uh, do you make a certain shift? Because I know, like our friend Daryl Kristen, you know, he often, you know, they're like, okay, show your personality. He's like, you know, he said to me, like, which personality do you want? Do you want like the representation of black, or do you want me to show my personality? And luckily, um, you know, there's plenty of things that he's hosted where, like, no, I want you to be you and the true Daryl, not, like, the black man persona. So I'm just kind of curious, like, wh- uh, what your experience hosting-wise is with that. Good question. I don't have any experience. I don't have anything because I've always been me. I think because I came to the business fully formed as James Law Jr., whatever that is, um, I just came on, as, and that's been the controversy for a lot of people. I just come on, I cry on camera, I laugh on camera, I got a big, loud, deep voice. Um, I talk plainly on camera. Uh, I can be professional. I know how to talk certain ways. I know the code switching, and I do all that. Um, but I've always brought fully who I am, and you know this, I worked with you, you know, you, really, you know this. I've always fully brought myself or versions of myself. My thing is more about entertaining. 
I know that I'm here to entertain. That's the number one thing of being a host is I'm here to like, hope you don't change the channel or change, you know, the video or change you know, or leave the, the, the YouTube. I want you to, I want you to stay with me, whoever I'm talking to. So for the most part, I'm everything. I'm not just black, white, Puerto Rican. I'm just, I'm, I'm just James. I just, I, I run my life that way personally and professionally. So I've never been afraid to bring that into anything that I do. And when it comes to hosting, I'm fully James Lott Jr., as you know. And on Black Hollywood Live, when I was on that show, I would make jokes and say, you can get a little blacker on here. And that was always a joke I would say it to my guests. Like, can we say it? Like, you say what you want. It's Black Hollywood Live. We're black, you know. Um, but I never, if you look across all of my shows, whether it was Dishing Days or When Calls the Heart or an interview with, with uh, Ed Asner or whatever, I was always James Lott Jr. across the board. And I know there are times where it maybe came across very black or very gay or very old or very whatever. I mean, I just always felt that I learned very, and this is not an ego thing, but I just learned very early on that I have a magic that some other folks have is too. People seem to like me. They seem to want to listen to me. They seem to want to be, you know, want to be around me. So I said, I got to harness that when I do hosting. I got to find a way to harness that. Um, that people want to see and hear what I have to say. So as long as I'm upbeat and interested and prepared, which I am in all my interviews and all my shows, that I think that's the win. I think I think after a while they kind of stop seeing my color on some level, and they kind of it's James Lott Jr. I mean I think they see that, but I realized I have a, I have a magic in there that I can that I've tapped I've learned to tap into and to say the more authentic I can be the more enjoyable you'll be to watch me. And I get that all the time. Well, James, you seem interested in your interviews. You seem interested in what you're talking about. Well, I am. Yeah. I really, and you know this, I, you, what you see is what you get. I am this way with everybody every time, 24-7. Um, I talk this way in personal life, in real life. And, I, and I've had to tell people who I know are not their cup of tea. I know there's folks who just, I, they, they, I'm, they've criticized the way I, my style and everything. I say, that's okay. That the, I'm, I have people who are not my style. You know, I like Howard Stern. I like uh, Larry King. I like, I like Barbara Walters. I like, but there's also people I don't care for so much in their style. That's just fine. We react to each other how we come to it. So it's just kind of like, well, maybe I might. I had two people. I've had four people in my entire career turn me down for interviews. They didn't like my style. That's a great batting average, though, because everybody else is, I've done over thousands of hours of television. So I think that's good. But I've had four people tell me, I had one recently tell me that I was just not his style. And thanks, but no thanks. Okay. I'm taking friends to that. I'm not going to change. I'm, I'm, I'm 51 years old. I'm not going to change anytime soon. I'm, just, I'm not going to. So I don't change my hosting. I, just, I, I bring me and versions of me just to everything that I do. I don't yeah. worry about. No, I commend that. The only thing I'll uh, say is uh, you're very, very conscious, not the curse. You can kiss my grits. That's yeah, kiss, the only my grits. <laughs> kiss my grits, cheese and crackers. God bless America. I do my best. I, I had to come up with those because I don't. I don't. I have a mouth of a truck driver, folks. I really do in real life. I do. I cuss, so I try not to. So I come up with those, and the fans love it. The fans love that. They know when I come on. Oh, cheese and crackers. Kiss my grits. I mean, I just can't help it. So I try not to cut. No, but but even that, like that, that became part of your person. You know what I mean? It's not like you changed who you were. You were just like, okay, I I know I shouldn't swear on camera, so let me just still do it, but just in a in a PC clean version type of way. It's hard sometimes because something because as you know, when we do some of these shows that are opinion based shows, we we're really passionate. We get into it, 
and I know one of the things, especially with AfterBuzz, especially where we met, was they wanted to feel a friend's talking. That was the whole thing. Your friends are your fans of a show and your friends having a discussion. Well, with my friends, I say certain words. They come out. Um, and so I had to learn, well, no, you don't want to do that. You don't want any, you don't want explicit ratings on, you know, certain things. So and on my, when I did, oh my God, when I first did my radio show and I was on the radio, the standards of practice, they're like, James, I'm like, oh, I know. And I'm, 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 I'm out somebody right now. The only person who has gotten me in trouble when I was on the radio was Mark J. Freeman. He knows this. He said three or four cuss words during my show and they had to leave it out. I got in trouble. And we had to joke about that later. We had a good joke about that. I got in trouble for that. But Mark Chief was the only person who got me in trouble on the radio. He was cussing. Amazing. Well, um, uh, we're, we're sort of running out of time. So I want to I use this time to, you know, wh- what's your message for, like, what, what can we do to, you know, really enact change? Like, what's, what's the best way? And, and, you know, obviously, like, I think listening and learning is a huge component of it, but I also don't think it's enough at this point in time. Like action needs to happen. So, you know, what, what, what do you, from your perspective? I invite everyone. That's all races, all ages. But right now I'm specifically saying white folks, because right now, like you said, at the beginning of the show, it's your turn at this point. You know, we're fighting and giving, I'm trying to give you ideas, but literally now it's your turn to actually affect change in the world. So I invite white folks to shut up and listen to your black counterparts and people of color counterparts. Uh, try to listen without judgment. I know it's hard. Try this without judgment and really, truly listen. If you need help, I learn how to listen. I'm a life coach. Come to me and I'll teach you how to listen for a fee. Um, and start putting into practice in your everyday life. I invite you in your everyday life, how you walk through life. Try to create those habits of taking bias out and prejudice out of your brains. Um, and treating people of color and black folks differently. Um, not always coming to a quick conclusions of, well, it has to, don't see 10 sides to the story. Try to see the black side of the story. Just try to, just try to see it. Even if you don't understand it, just try. Like I said, form habits, start to see it. Um, also, find your niche. You need some help, talk to one of your black friends. Talk to one of your black family. Some of us have black family members who are white. Um, talk to them. See, ask them, what can they do? Usually they'll tell you what you can do, um, and then try to do it. Um, and I'm also employing everyone, every black, every white person, every black person too, vote. This is my crusade. Not just only for president, but local level. We have to start from where your neighborhood is. I have affected change on my block from going to town hall meetings and seeing what they're trying to implement in your own neighborhoods that are not good. So you really have to take that. I'm sorry, folks. You have to take that time. Read those measures in the ballot. Read those laws in the ballot. Who are you voting in for district attorney? Who are you voting in for council person? Mayor, vice mayor, um, you know, sheriffs, uh, you know, and also lieutenant governor, governor. But look at those laws. Look at those measures. Um, you're like, oh, measure A, I don't know what that means. Read it. Because, it. because when something gets passed, you're like, I don't know how that happened. I can't park on my own street anymore. Well, you didn't pay attention. They're giving you everything. They're giving you all the information. They're giving it to you. Um, and there's some rhetoric and stuff out there that is out there against black folks. It's all out there and it's right there for you. So I invite white folks to read everything and, and, and please vote with your hearts and with some brains and, you know, really stand with your black brothers and sisters. This is an American problem. This is an American problem. It's happening to black folks. It's an American problem. 
And I just wrote a, I just wrote a song yesterday called My Problem Is Your Problem. It'll be out soon. It's my first protest song. You know how I am. I can't help but creating. Um, but that's basically what it is. Is that this is our problem. And I think once white folks get on board with that, then true change will begin to happen. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, final thing. Uh, plug plug everything that. <laughs> well, sit back. Got- I'll be here for another ten minutes. So <laughs> hi. Okay. So, well, I'll just first say, you know, where you can find me is that we're all James Loud Juniors are sold at James Loud Jr. and all social media platforms, including TikTok. And I want to tell somebody on TikTok. Is it I'm bad a- that I feel uncomfortable when you say that? Well, just- I sold. I sold. I really sold. I know. I'm taking it back for this. For this. Um, uh, James Loud Jr. on TikTok, because I have a series called A Lot of Spoken Word. I do spoken word pieces for under a minute. And some people got mad at me recently because my spoken word pieces got a little more racial. So you know what James Loud Jr. is going to do? I'm going to continue doing those. So follow me there. Show me some love. Give me some comments. Uh, let's talk about it. Um, all my show, I have like seven podcasts. They're all out there. Just go to JLJ Media on YouTube. Go to JLJ Media on any platform, from Spotify to iHeartRadio to Google Play, everything. I have stuff from being left-handed, as Phil knows, um, to When Calls the Heart, to the soaps, all the Hallmark stuff. And I have a show called Extra Connections, which has been on also. Um, I do have a lot of shows. I have something for everybody. And then, of course, my organizing show, The SRS Show with James Lott Jr. Um, but I have shows for everyone to listen to and watch. Check those out. Subscribe and comment. I have music out. On every streaming service, you can find music. My new album that's coming out is called Songs from My Dark Place. And actually, the songs are very dark, actually. I recorded them two years ago when I was coming out of my Bell's Palsy, learning how to speak again. Um, and they actually fit what's going on today. How interesting is that? The themes are very much like today. And that will be coming out. And I have books. I have 20 books. And my latest book that just came out is How I Became Entrepreneur with my buddy Cesar Espino. We have a book series coming out. This first book is How We Became Entrepreneurs. Our next book coming out is How We Started Out as Entrepreneurs. And we both tell you plainly, in plain language, how we did it and how we are doing it. And that's all my books are on Amazon. They're all on Amazon or James Lott Jr. You can go ahead and follow those. I think that's everything I can think of right now. That's everything. Well, that was only 30 things. I think you have 100. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm creative, folks. I love it. I'm creative. Well, I, I truly appreciate you and uh, I appreciate your compassion. Um, and I appreciate you uh, continuing your efforts in, in this cause. and. Uh, Thank you from the bottom of my heart for always being a mentor. Bill, you are affecting change in the world. So by doing this and talking to your friends who are black, you are affecting positive change in the world. So you are doing what more white folks need to do. And so, and I know it's coming from your heart. I know it's coming from your, your guts. I know it's coming from your mind. And that's the three places you should always listen to. Um, so I appreciate, you know, I love you. and I appreciate you very much. Thank you. Take care.